United States of Lead is an informative podcast that may contain sensitive material and the occasional F-bomb. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Cult of Corporation, a spinoff from Paul and Andrea of the United States of Lead, where we dive into the cult-like following of corporate America. We recently discussed the origins of our good old friend, Ginny. So this week, we thought we'd take a look at the early life of her husband, Clarence Thomas. Now, I know we've been wanting to talk about him for a while, and just like with Ginny's episode, we're just going to talk about the early life because there's a lot to dive into. Do you know, I mean, as far as Clarence, you know, we know he's a Supreme Court justice and he sexually assaulted someone, but do you know any tidbits before we get into this? And don't read ahead because I don't want you knowing. I know he's a bad dude. He, I've seen some interactions with him, kind of like him on the street or him with other people. And he is, just seems like a really, really um, kind of rude and uh, like a sense of superiority, a sense of entitlement. It's... Um, he seems to really look down to other black people. It's pretty. Uh, it's pretty gross. Any good hero story mm-hmm. recognizes that villains are created, and so that's something important to remember. Is that you know we have this notion of like evil is evil. Well, these villains are created, and the, and the whole point of the origin story with a lot of these you know Marvel, even Disney, is they show how these people became who they are. And that's what I really want to focus on. And like with Ginny, we unfortunately had very limited information of her childhood because it's just not there. But we at least got the notion of how she, our interpretation of how she came to be who she is. Big fish in small pond goes to small fish in a big pond. The comfort of having that to wanting that your life to be have meaning. At the end of the day is a lot of just wanting to feel important and special there's a podcast called Affirmative Murder, and they tweeted this guy who's in front of some sort of committee demanding that the school take down this plaque that says, your life has meaning in this world, or don't never forget that your life matters, something like that. Yeah, it was a uh, Prager University guy. Oh, so did you see that? I saw that. It's disgusting. Okay. He's so okay. broken. He's just so broken. All right. And that's what we need to be focusing on, because what does he bring up? He brings up his father. Mm-hmm. And how he says, if my father ever said this to me when I was a kid, even though he didn't drink, I'd think he's drunk. The person I saw, I think I saw it on TikTok and the creator, uh, I don't remember who it was, but they 
very astutely and wonderfully pointed out, like they said, what a bizarre flex. That's what they're leading with is that their dad doesn't love them. So that's what I said. I'm like, wow, it really sounds like this guy had a breakthrough and he should really talk to a therapist now that he's had this breakthrough of what, where this all stems from. Your right. father didn't think your life had any value. Therefore, your father believed you were worthless. And so therefore, every child, that, every so child is worthless until yeah, they, and, yeah. And every child should believe this. No, your that father they are inherently without, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we're going to be getting to this now with Clarence's story. We need to start looking at those things because they're telling us what it is. When, you know, and it's like, why did you have to bring up your father not loving you enough? Or not, I shouldn't say not loving you, but not expressing. He, it was a flex. It was like, I'm. And that's not a flex. Look how cool I am. Look how well I was raised. Your stunted emotional development is I'm not stunted a flex. emotionally. Yeah. Well, I understand that. <laughs> I, and that's where, I mean, obviously. Spoiler alert, all this stems from me. that development being stunted as a child. But anyways, let's get to Clarence. Pretty much everything I have is from Wikipedia. So I know it's kind of lazy, but I didn't have time to write notes and whatever. But there's some good information. And at least Wikipedia has sources connected to all the information they have. And I love Wikipedia. I think it's amazing. And uh, yes, I want more, I want more of the democratization of, of information like Wikipedia. So according to Wikipedia quote, Clarence Thomas was born in 1948 in Pinpoint, Georgia, which was a small, predominantly Black community near Savannah. He was the second of three children born to M.C. Thomas, who was a farm worker, and Leola Williams, who was a domestic worker. And they were descendants of slaves, and the family spoke Gula, which Gula, um, Gula yeah. thank yeah. You, as their first language, which is a Creole language. Let's have audiences imagine this like an origin story, all right? So you have this kid. This is how he's, this is his introduction into the world. Thomas's father left the family when Thomas was two years old. This is where he's at least at an age where He's had a bonding, if you will, to his father, and then he leaves at a very crucial time in development. Though Thomas's mother worked hard, she sometimes was paid only pennies per day, and she struggled to earn enough money to feed the family and had to sometimes rely on charity. Now, this is Wikipedia's writing, so somebody wrote this with a certain agenda with how they're wording it. After a house fire left them homeless, Clarence and his young brother Myers were taken to live in Savannah with his maternal grandparents, Myers and Christine Anderson, end quote. No information on what caused the house fire. No information on what happened to his mother after this. So they go and they live with his grandparents. And, and they're very Catholic, very Roman Catholic. Okay. So it sounds like to me, the first few years of his life were pretty traumatic. Your father leaves you at two. You have a, a fire that leaves you homeless. Your mother, again, at an age of divide. It doesn't say what how old he was when this house fire happened, but mm -hmm. I'm going to go out on a limb and that it's at this crucial stage of development too. And then, so then you have that maternal connection is gone and it's kind of like a one by one domino effect of this. It's not like both of them were pulled from you at the same time. You have this loss of comfort twice in this early stage of your life. So he goes to live with his grandparents. Clarence was raised Catholic. He attended the predominantly black St. Pius X high school for two years before transferring to St. John Vienne's. Oh, wow. I don't know on that one. Vienne's, yeah. Before transferring to a seminary school on <laughs> <laughs> the Isle of Hope, I love where it. he was among few Black students. 
just going to stop here for a second. So he goes from predominantly black Mm -hmm. immersed in his culture. You know, his first language wasn't even, it was a Creole language. And he, now he's one of only a few black students in this predominantly white seminary. Sure. He also briefly attended Conception Seminary College, which was a Roman Catholic seminary in Missouri. And so I have this side note of if only he would have stuck with that. (laughs) Now, here's obviously like you brought this up with Ginny, a vetting. If you were on the road near finishing seminary school, should you be in a position of power as a judge for the United States? Can you really separate church and state when you were on the road to becoming a priest? I think in a perfect world, sure. But I know what you're saying. And I think it says more about the people nominating him than. Oh, we'll get to that. Okay. Because, <laughs> I mean, it's like. I'm just I think giving a little dash for you here. Someone might have graduated from Cornell Law School that is just a really super constitutional scholar. They're just really into history and sociology or something and and the law that might have been able to do the same job. Yeah. Thomas has said that he left the seminary in the aftermath of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. because he apparently overheard another student say after the shooting, quote, good, I hope the son of a bitch died. And he did not think that the church did enough to combat racism, end quote. Okay. I feel like you know, like something's coming because of how this setup is happening. I mean, obviously, you do because we know what, where Clarence is today, but yeah. So, at a nun's suggestion, Thomas enrolled at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester. I almost, I almost wanted to pronounce it like Worcestershire. Worcester. In Massachusetts. Sorry, everybody. As a sophomore transfer student. Okay. So, he was only at that first school for a year when he heard that. And he's like, this is too much. I'm out. Thomas helped found the Black Student Union, and he once joined a walkout of the school after some Black students were punished while white students went undisciplined for the same violation, end quote. Sure. I feel like something that's really toxic is the myth of, like, the eternal hero. Like, someone becomes heroic, and then they just maintain that. Throughout their life. Yeah. We're not heroic uh, our whole lives, and if we're lucky, we're heroic the few times that we're called to it and then if we're really really lucky we are able to step back from it whether that's someone who's creating a new business or whatever it's like you had your moment you thought of this really great idea you created this new product to save these people whatever whatever mm-hmm. and but you can't continue that forever and you grow out of it or the world grows out of you i think that's more important the world grows out of you now so we're setting up right now he's on a trajectory of this isn't okay And I'm going to advocate for saying that this isn't okay. You know, he left a place where it wasn't deemed, you know, for him, it wasn't safe and he wasn't okay with being around these Mm -hmm. white racist people. Right. Mm -hmm. This is where I think it gets interesting. Okay. As a student, Thomas apparently attended some anti-war marches and he witnessed the 1970 Harvard Square riots. Now he says he credits this for his disillusionment of leftist movements and his turn toward conservatism. Okay. So he sees the injustice. He's very focused on addressing racism, but then the protests against the war is where he draws the line and is like, no, this isn't okay. So Thomas had a series of deferments from the military draft while he was at Holy Cross. 
Upon graduation, he was classified as a low lottery number, indicating that he was going to be drafted into Vietnam. Of course he was. He's black. But Thomas failed the medical exam because he had a supposed curvature of the spine and he wasn't drafted. Okay. This just made me think of the bone spurs. Right. (laughs) So this is my point I'm getting to. You're against these war pro, like adamant, and it just shifts you completely from being having, quote, leftist views to now having, quote, conservative views when you got to not be drafted into war for this medical excuse. And now you're like, these anti-war people are insane. I'm pro-war because I don't have to go because I'm safe from not having to go. That's how I view that. He wasn't going to be drafted and he knew it. And so you can get on this pedestal knowing that you're safe from having to actually see that part of it. And again, this is very limited information we have, but I feel that there's more into this, which would be great to dive into. Like, how curved is his spine? <laughs> Do you right. know what I mean? Like, well, and he has access to a doctor. Walking fine. Right. <laughs> like, we see him nowadays. It's not hindering, and it doesn't seem to be. I have an great. acute allergy to lead. I can't fight in a war. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's just always those connections of like, wow, you're really against these people who are against slaughtering people on both sides and you also have this excuse why you don't have to go and fight after you were drafted he would yeah he would have been drafted yeah Yeah, he was he was gonna be and so now he needed this well he can't because he's got a curse fine anyways now again this is when he was at holy cross so i'm sure we could get into you know who what doctor did he go to was there somebody you know saw that yada yada anyway this was a big deal and i don't know enough about this i don't you know, just the war. I just want to. I just want to acknowledge this. Like, yes, I've just heard from enough people of this generation of like what you did during this time, how what your relationship was to the war. It's just a big, big, big deal, and it really does color. It colored everything you were doing at the moment, and it's really defined a lot of people's who they are now, who they're who they have who, who they have access to being. I don't know. I don't. I don't totally get it. Uh, I kind of can suss out some of it from this, my time in the service, but it's like I do understand that like this. This was just a whole thing. This was a big divide. Yeah, it just it was a big, big deal. I don't know how else to say it. Like as a as an amateur cultural theorist, it's just a big, big thing. I feel like this was the first war to where the platform of why are we there was on a national scale. You know, there's a, certainly a, a cultural disillusionment, a political disillusionment. Uh, also, this is when everybody is, was tripping acid for the first time, too, and actually going, like, what is the meaning of a lot of this stuff? So I've heard this recently. I'm embarrassed that I didn't think of it. But uh, super recently, someone pointed out that because of the cultural and financial prosperity of the nation after World War II, the boomer generation was really the first group of, because they were just so generally prosperous they actually had the mental and personal space to think of these sort of things they could imagine what a world would look like with a less authoritarian or a more communal government or all these kind of hippie structures we didn't really have that space before of course we didn't move into that space because you know we're here this notion of liberalism and and communal benefit was a response to a rise of capitalism and ultimately financial and political authoritarianism. Yeah. 
So after graduating from Holy Cross, Thomas attended Yale Law School, and he graduated in 1974 with a Juris degree ranked in the middle of his class, end quote. Now, middle of his class means he's average. So Clarence Thomas is average, okay? Let's just get that out there now. But I want to stop here for a second because Ginny also graduated. Remember, we mentioned that she had graduated with a Juris doctor. What I didn't read until after we recorded that episode is that Ginny actually failed her bar exam. It's a big deal. It happens a lot. And that's why she went back to work for that representative. So that's a key point we missed of, you know, she had these aspirations. She was going to do these things. And then she failed that. Now, obviously, she had to have taken the bar again at some point, right? Is she, she, she was a lawyer. Is she a practicing lawyer somewhere? It's, I mean, that on her Wikipedia, it says she's, she's an American attorney. Like it says it on her Wikipedia page. But either way, she was a failure. <laughs> and this obviously is something that really propels a lot of people. I mean, she is a failure at humanity. Uh, you know, I, I don't I just don't want anyone listening, thinking that we're we're knocking the difficulty of the bar. Um, I'm, I I'm also being sarcastic. Yeah, you're being, if, yeah, if, okay. If, you, if, you, if people haven't noticed that I'm sarcastic yet, then you're not going to want to listen to this. <laughs> I'm saying it with a degree of sarcasm because of what propels a lot of people, like, because with this is what we were talking about before the show, mm-hmm. is these high expectations. You don't meet them, but there's a way that you can meet them. Right. But it's not by... Meeting them. Pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and actually meeting them. Right. It's finding somebody who's going to get you what you need. <laughs> so anyways. How can I lower my bar? Yes. Good pun. Anyways, so what is a Juris Doctor degree? Well, quote, the purpose of a JD is to prepare someone to practice law. Upon completion of the degree program, students are eligible to sit for the bar and become licensed attorneys, end quote. So this just sets you up. It doesn't mean that you're in. So Clarence goes to his first college in Massachusetts at Holy Cross, and then he goes to Connecticut and went to Yale. So I find this next part interesting. Quote, after graduation, Thomas studied for the Missouri Bar at St. Louis University of Law. He was admitted to the Missouri Bar on September 13th, 1974, end quote. He's over there on the East Coast, but then he goes and takes the bar in Missouri. So here's a fun fact about the Missouri Bar. Quote, a regular passage rate in the mid to upper 80s easily makes the list of easiest bar exams. <laughs> Missouri is a UBE state and will not test any specific state law on the bar. However, applicants must take the Missouri educational component prior to sitting for the bar. This exam does test state law, but you are provided with study materials that you can use with you to take the test at your leisure, end quote. Wow. Yeah. Kind of so, kind of weird, right? <laughs> I have two brothers that are attorneys. Yeah. And one, I know, passed the bar in one state after they graduated in Boston. I believe they passed the bar in Alaska. And then they did not pass the bar in Alaska. They worked in Alaska and then eventually passed the bar in California. They worked in a lot of other states as like legal consultants, but they eventually like had someone to pay them to practice and study and test so that they could pass it. And the same thing with my other brother, where he's only really worked in D.C., but it was a big financial and big commitment to pass the bar. 
So I really want to give every, I mean, I, I'm saying this because I appreciate how much of a commitment it is, but um, this is real. This is certainly materials during your test. That's this insane. is certainly suspicious information. Uh, it's where you're like, I can afford to go to, or you know, whether whether it's a Ford or it was admitted to, I did whatever I needed to do to get into Yale, but now I'm going to Missouri, like to take the bar. That that's just, what I'm that's, saying. That screams, uh, uh, what is the, what do they call that? Degree mill. And I want to go back and say too, I'm not saying anything about graduating average, like you know, because he was in the middle of this class. There's nothing wrong with being in the middle of your class. Where Clarence is now. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying it. he has a chip on his shoulder here. And that's where I'm saying that he has a problem with the fact that he's middle in his class. 100%. I'm, not saying that there's, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being in the middle of your class. I'm saying that Clarence has an issue with this. 100%. But then goes to a goes to a state where he knows he's going to pass the bar because you can use study material to take the test at your leisure. That is absurd. I'm going to get a doctoral degree from National American University. You, <laughs> oh, I miss you the theme song. You, yo, it's never left you. It's never. always been in your heart. But uh, why if would you? If I admit- ever get dementia, dementia or Alzheimer's, can yep. you please play that? And that'll trigger my memories back. Done. That's the song. It's not something from my childhood, like music that I like, like Mariah Carey or Nirvana. It's going to be the National American University. That's going to trigger me. So people listening, if that ever happens, just play that for me. And boom, I'm back. You're back. <laughs> I'm back, baby. Anyways. So he passes the Missouri Bar, and from 1974 to 1977, he was an assistant attorney general of Missouri under state attorney general John Danforth, who happened to be a fellow Yale alum. Now, I find this interesting because Clarence apparently trash talks Yale in his 2007 memoir, saying, quote, I peeled a 15 cent sticker off a package of cigars and stuck it on a frame of my law degree to remind myself of the mistake I made going to Yale. I never did change my mind about its value, end quote. But it seems to me that Clarice got his first job out of college because of knowing somebody who went to Yale. Yeah, that's really revealing. Sure is. He's a... There's something that went on at Yale outside of... Yeah, he's a little time traveler in his mind. In his mind, he can go back in time and change things. Yes. Quote: Thomas was the only African American member of Danforth's staff. And a fun fact about Danforth is George Senior actually considered selecting him as a VP, but apparently went with Dan Quayle instead, which I just find hilarious because this guy seems like he probably was actually a better candidate for it. And interesting enough, too, Dan Quayle's middle name is Danforth. Isn't oh, that a fun fact? That's a uh, weird name. Yeah, weird synchronicity too. Yeah, oh, for sure. So, quote, when Danforth was elected to U.S. Senate in 1976, (laughs) don't read ahead, Thomas left to become an attorney for Monsanto Chemical Company in St. Louis. No way. And that's our show. Thanks for tuning in. LOL. (laughs) (laughs) We've solved the mystery. Who had Monsanto on the bingo card? And I kind of forgot about Monsanto, like until I read this, I was like, oh my God, those fucking people assholes. (laughs) So that's his second job, two years after passing the bar. Now, does this not make you think about Ginny after she works for the representative and goes back to Washington? What's the first thing she does is she fights for corporations. Right. You know, it's just important to underline, not everyone that graduates from Harvard, not everyone that graduates from Ivy League schools is going into like these amazing things. It's actually, they're really kind of 
centralized pockets. And if you, yeah. I know this because in Minnesota, if you went to Harvard, it's cool, but yeah. there isn't a huge Harvard alumni group within our circle. So like, it's not as valuable as if you stayed on the East Coast or went to these central areas of power. Yeah. You know, for him to graduate in 74 mm -hmm. and then go into the district attorney's office, he was in the middle of his class. He went to some kind of, I was going to call it a, a degree mill, but as you pointed out, I mean, it's the easiest. It's one of, it's well Isn't known it's as, easiest? it's a well, yes, it's a well-known easy school to, or easy test to pass. And then and how do you think he found out about that? I'm sure Danforth took the bar in Missouri too. He's actually from there though, which is different, but. Well, Monsanto is a big name and I'm certain there were large checks, very, very large checks being written out in his name, in Thomas's name. Yes. Two years after graduating and not every lawyer has this experience. So God, he's, no. he's banking on something like whether that's connection he's, he's or he's seeing the value in race. being on the side of corporations right right he's seeing and, the monetary value of being on the side of corporations and people on the side of corporations are seeing his value because yes. they're paying for him to yes, to fight for them if you will right and yeah and i'm sure that there's more connected to thomas's connection to danforth and yale that we could get into but i just don't have time to dig on it now but i i know there's more to that as a project manager, I don't want anyone at Monsanto to think I'm a valuable asset to them. I would not want that. Judge me by my enemies. And I'm very proud that no one in Monsanto would want me in the room on their side. <laughs> it's great. It's so, quote, Thomas moved to Washington, D.C. and again worked for Danforth from 1979 to 1981 as legislative assistant handling energy issues for the Senate Commerce Committee. Now, I want to stop here, too, because this is exactly what happened with Ginny. She worked for that representative. She stopped for a brief minute, worked for the corporate law, law part, and then she went and worked for him again. Mm -hmm. They both had that two-year buffer, which could also kind of be seen as grooming. Hmm. Quote, Thomas and Danforth had both studied to be ordained. Although in different denominations, but Danforth championed Thomas for the Supreme Court at court. So you were wondering who was that person who yeah. really pushed for that. It's somebody he bonded with because they both were on a journey to be ordained and then chose politics instead, apparently. Okay, so now I do bring up again, though. Both of these guys are were on this road and we're supposed to believe that they had the separation of church and state. And we've talked about already the family and that connection to a certain sector believing that this is the only way there is, is through this path of Christianity. So it seems pretty clear to me that their religious bond is what caused Danforth to raise Clarence up the chain in Reagan's administration. It was the, the, the religious connection. And in eight, oh my God, not 18. It feels like we're in 1891. Maybe that's why. And in 1981, quote, President Reagan nominated Thomas as Assistant Secretary of Education for the Office for Civil Rights in the U.S. Department of Education, end quote. Now, do you think that was by mistake? Mm -hmm. And someone who, as we mentioned before, in their earlier life, did advocate for civil rights. Quote, Thomas chaired the EEOC from 1982 to 1990. Journalist Evan Thomas once wrote that Thomas was, quote, Openly ambitious for higher office, end quote, during his tenure at EEOC. 
As chairman, he promoted a doctrine of self-reliance and halted the usual EEOC approach of filing class action discrimination lawsuits, instead pursuing acts of individual discrimination, unquote. So again, a reminder that Thomas has this whole pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality, even though he seemed to get his gig in Washington by knowing people. That's why everyone gets gigs. Yeah, 85% of every job you'll ever get is because of somebody you know. So take it again. He halted the whole agenda of that department and focused on self-reliance and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah. Which we saw again, noting that his earlier years wasn't really the mentality he had, was it? But wow, how things shift at the drop of a hat. And that goes to what you were saying about the hero journey. So another interesting connection to this whole pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality is guess which author he just fucking loves. Oh my God. <laughs> of course I he does. Of course, of course he does. He says that her work really influenced him. In particular, The Fountainhead, which he later required his staffers to watch the 1949 film version of. Now, does this not remind you of Ginny Thomas handing out those pamphlets? and forcing people to go through those anti-cult workshops. I've never actually seen that movie. I have read the book, uh, which is like, that's not a flex or anything. But I have to say... <laughs> that's your liberal flex. Uh, some, I do have to say, I would have appreciated if I had to watch or like consume, if my boss was making me consume some kind of media, uh, it's so much more appropriate for them to say, you have to watch this movie than read this book. One on, the, one on the one on the forcing anybody to watch propaganda before they start in your office, I don't think is the best idea. Oh, absolutely. But also, let's have a screening of that. It's probably long as hell, too. You're probably yeah. I bet it, yeah, it's just, four and a half hours, something like that. <laughs> one second here. You look it up. <laughs> I'm looking up the duration quick because I just want to know. Oh, it's only an hour and fifty four minutes. Okay, but this was back in. Hold on. If this was back in the 80s, okay, there were laser discs and VHS and stuff. I was thinking, like, it might be difficult for them to find a copy of oh. the movie. But well, even so, though, I mean, it's not like it was popular. I, I highly doubt that was being mass produced. Right. And not every staffer could, you know, pay the $1,200, $8 to $1,200 to get a VHS yeah, but player. What's the first thing of a cult you do? Right. You're forcing your staffers to watch this before they work for you, you're forcing them to watch capitalist propaganda. So, Ginny and Clarence were seriously a match made in heaven, if you look at it like that. So his political views, too. Thomas acknowledges, quote, some very strong libertarian leanings, though he doesn't consider himself a libertarian, <laughs> end quote. Of course he doesn't. He's his own his own person. He's, yes. he's um, uh, sarcasm. He's just too complex <laughs> to be pinned down as a single type of person. We're going to talk about Ayn Rand more, but we should make a little collage isn't the word I'm looking for. But, you know, start putting people up on on the Hall of Rand, Ayn Rand. Hall of Rand. Hall of Rand. Yeah, well, we have it. to make a Hall of Rand and show these key players who note her as being the way. And like we said, this is a cult in itself and the hypocrisy. So he starts going against the, it, he starts drilling in the self-reliance. I know he had some sort of indoctrination into the family type stuff that all of a sudden, you know, you're for this certain agenda and you dramatically shift to the complete opposite and start making 
policies and advocating for certain things only for a specific agenda that is connected to Ayn Rand's vision of manifest your destiny by yourself. Only you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's that easy when you went to Yale and know somebody in Yale and they get you your position of power in Washington. Something that isn't really discussed in art and media and in larger circles is the black experience, the black and brown experience, experience people of color, particularly black and brown people who move into any kind of success, any kind of historical and traditional success. It's not easy to navigate those spaces and to do what we need to do whilst navigating those spaces and not have like this weird experience with should I be here? How come more of me, more people like me are not here? Is how I'm benefiting appropriate? Because so many other people are not benefiting from this. And even if I were to leave every door open, every ladder, you know, lowered every, did everything I could to raise other people up, it's still never going to be enough. So by participating in this, it's like, I don't know, it's weird. I didn't mention that after Yale, Mm -hmm. he said that his first few interviews, affirmative action was really big when he had just graduated. Sure. And he blames affirmative action for not getting jobs right out of Yale. So like, because he was, wait, hold on. So I'm guessing he interviewed with some white people and then... They didn't think he was as smart as he was because of affirmative action. So he and, was in a position to be able to walk away from that. That's no. Yes. So that, he blames affirmative action mm. for people thinking that he's just average, even though he literally graduated being average. And he blames affirmative action for people not realizing how smart he was. Yeah, this is really about him. His whole career is really, I'm, I'm absolutely serious about this. His whole career, I'm willing to say, is him trying to magically make his prosperity acceptable. Justifiable. Completely justifiable. Yeah. That's, uh, the reason why he has what he has, the reason why other people, other Black people, other people of color don't have you know, he took from the cookie jar and he did not replace. And he's saying that's 1000% okay. And yep, his whole career makes sense. Yeah. And if I, like I said, if I had more time, I would want to look at where did he interview first after school? How many times did he get rejected? Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, you got your first job from Yale alum who you trash talk Yale, even though that's not coincidence. That guy saw Yale on your resume. And that's why you got that job. And you also took the bar there. You didn't live there. You went and moved to Missouri to take the bar. I don't know if he failed the bar in, in Massachusetts or Connecticut first and then went to Missouri and took it. I don't yeah. I don't know that information, but I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. No, this guy's used. He's used by the racist Republican Party who... And this is how they get you into the cult. All right. This, a, yeah. he's, he's raised Catholic. We already mm-hmm. talk about Catholic guilt. We already talk about how effective shaming is. You're raised up by these people. This is how they pull you into the cult. It's not you, it's everybody else. And that's how they get you in. And then look, you get all these things. They were right. It's not you, it is everybody else. Because look at all these things you have. And you're in it for life after that point. And literally for life. <laughs> As he is a Supreme Court justice. So that's my person. I just feel like all this is tying to that. That's, that's the pull in. It's, you know, like talking about DARVO, it's using DARVO as a tactic, but with like, I, we could make our own acronym because, you know, it's 
shame pulls you in. It's not you, it's everybody else. And we'll prove that to you. Look at all these amazing things you get from listening to us. How could it be wrong? I'd like to leave it here because A, that's all the time we have. And B, this matches Ginny and Clarence's timeline. We're at the late 80s right now with both of them. We can end with saying that both of their origins, they have jobs catering to corporate interests before they got together. That timeline is almost like spot on that they work for a representative, leave, go work corporate law, mm-hmm, and then come mm-hmm. back and work for these same representatives. Not different, but they both go back to the same people. Mm-hmm. It's like they're handlers. Well, yeah, you need to uh, you need to get your bona fides. You can't uh, just be a government worker. Dip into the river sticks of corporate mentality. Corporate. They're being yeah. I mean, I honestly Cor- believe it's a part. It's this act of grooming. Let's see. Can you handle this? Can you do all this shady shit? You can. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Come back. You're ready. Yes. You said it better than I. Yes. Things are starting to make a lot more sense though, at least for us. I can't stand these people. <laughs> That's all the time we have for this week. Uh, tune in next week with an episode of United States of Lead. And then, like we said, biweekly, we come back with a cultic corporation where we'll talk more about how corrupt our society is. <laughs> Can't wait. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to United States of Lead, hosted by Andrea Elizabeth and Paul Kramer. Just a quick disclaimer, Andrea and Paul are not experts in lead poisoning. We do ask that you check our sources and read up a little bit more on your own. Thanks again for listening.